Hello, you are listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Jacques Aver with Audubon, Louisiana. And I'm Simone Malaz with Restore or Retreat. Today, we are highlighting the wildlife of Delta Dispatches <laughs> in our coast. I'm so excited uh, to have a former guest on, um, but, you know, certainly someone that we follow closely, uh, Sarah Sneath, environmental reporter with the Times-Picayune, and she's had a series of a lot of uh, wildlife and kind of both the challenges and successes in terms of conservation for these species. So we're going to talk to Sarah a little bit more about that, that, those series. And then also it's been almost a year since, you know, the whole team kind of got formed and, and, and she and Mark and others were on. So we want to check in on what's been going on with her. But first, what's been going on with you, Simone? Oh, man, working hard. Um, we have a couple of things going on. Uh, next week is the National Conference for Ecosystem Restoration. Uh, I have to speak actually Tuesday oh, yeah. and What are you going to be speaking Thursday. about? Uh, so on Tuesday, I'm on a panel about the Working Coast and, and partnerships. And so um, we have several close partnerships with with folks in industry and, and work on big projects with them. And so they're going to be talking about um, each their individual work and and our um, role there is to provide some, you know, color commentary about opportunities for these these non-traditional partnerships, right? And how, um, you know, it seems weird that we're working with a business, but and that they have, you know, this certain ecosystem or outreach goal associated with it. And then, of course, on Thursday, we're talking about money. Yeah, you know, talk about it all the time. Yeah. Well, and Environmental about- Defense Fund just released yes. their report, right? Yes, I saw that Steve Cochran, former guest on the show, had a um, had a nice editorial about, you know, the importance of thinking outside the box with um, things like environmental impact bonds. And so it is certainly something that folks have been interested in lately. Uh, there is an, another forum in Thibodeau next week with America's Wetlands talking about some uh, some kind of regional approaches. Um, but what about you? Have you been on a field trip lately? I don't think I've been on a field <laughs> oh, trip. No, <laughs> I've been organizing some flyovers, though, yeah. for you know some of our uh, New Orleans meteorologists to get out ah. and kind of see you know coastal areas and coastal land. They should loss. appreciate that, yeah, right, from their great. point of view. And they've been, you know, we, we have one tomorrow, then there was one that was last week and you know it's just uh, always amazing it was amazing for me the first time i kind of went up to see really both ha- how close we are to the water how much loss there's been i mean they stand really in front of that map every yeah. day right and every I, day and you wonder i mean i wonder i feel like if you go back and like look at the map now mm-hmm. versus the map when i was young it's probably changed so much yeah right? and you can see sometimes that when they put the map up they'll use like real satellite imagery mm-hmm. and the parish boundaries i'm using like air quotes or like you know, far outside and so much land has been lost mm-hmm. too. So. And just in terms of like, I mean, they report on it obviously with just tidal flooding now, but right. um, certainly during hurricane coverage and all of that, the opportunity to discuss wetlands as a buffer for storms is huge. So we've been really excited to have um, some of our local meteorologists yeah, great, engaged there. Great effort. Yeah. Uh, we also together have been working on, um, there's going to be an outreach event uh, with our friends at the Coastal Restoration and Protection or Coastal Protection and Restoration Authority on September 12th in Puris. And so we've been working with some of our friends to make that event possible. Yeah, September 10th, Coastal Connection. 12. On the water, or 12th. Yes, I'm reading. I <laughs> well, see you choke on the 10th, but Shock and I won't <laughs> <Yeah>. be there. <laughs> I see 12 in the paper, and yeah. I said 10. But um, no, it's Coastal Connections on the Water um, at Cajun Adventures and Bl- Bureau. So I think you'll yes. get out, kind of mm-hmm. get to see some. Yeah, you'll lands. be able to get in the field. And so um, that's what, you know, we feel. And we're talking about the flyovers too, and we do some boat tours and other things. Getting out into the into the field, into the water, and seeing it for your uh, for yourself just 
it's such an impact to people and and we want to make sure that people get that opportunity um and so that's why we're helping cpra make that happen yeah, absolutely there's another event i'm going to be really sad to miss um waterlogged artist views of the, their flooded city and that's tuesday August 28th from 6 to 7.30 at the historic New Orleans collection, which nice. is a great um, local museum. Yeah. On charters. Yeah. yeah. And it's um, really looking at the city's relationship with water, um, tying it back to the tricentennial and our history, um, but then from a perspective of art, which which is always so powerful. And I, we might have talked about this last week, but I did see that Waterways have has moved to Denham Springs. Oh, have and, they and moved? On the oh, tour, right? And I, I saw, did see Daryl and, and I teased her about driving that truck. And she's like, man, I can drive anything now. <laughs> <laughs> but they had to pack up their exhibit. Um, and then uh, for at Phoenix High School, and they had to, they moved in on to Denham Springs. And so um, part of that, um, you know, cooperation with uh, LEH, they're moving it around. And of course, Baton Rouge was impacted by the flooding. And so, you know, they wanted to bring it to Denham Two Springs. Two years as ago. Well. It's crazy to mm-hmm. think about that. It's been that long. It sure is. Are we ready to talk to Sarah? Yeah. Let's so, welcome back to Delta Dispatches, Sarah Sneath, um, environmental our com- our reporter on radio. Our radio competitor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you guys do with like uh, Travis and Tegan and uh, right. others yeah. on WWN. You do a weekly coastal roundup. Is that right? We do on Fridays um, and it airs at 7.44 and 4.44. Uh, we do a little segment that's just a wrap up of all the coastal news. Do you sometimes think like, oh my gosh, I forgot about that. My week has been so long that <laughs> when you talk about wrapping it up, right? You're like, oh, I forgot that happened on Monday, right? <laughs> yeah, definitely. And then also just the fact that there's three of us, you wouldn't think that there would be enough coastal news um, every week for three people to write. Jacques and I surprised stories. ourselves that we have so much to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I love it because it's a great just reminder of like, wow, all that has happened in the last week. Or, you know, it's and I like that you guys do a good job of highlighting kind of like, the more serious and then kind of some of sometimes a little bit more fun stories too. Definitely. It's really fun. So let's talk about your latest series. Well, I guess you want to talk about the desk in itself and well, then yeah. we'll get into I mean, series. you've been, you've been in the role now for a little bit over a year and we talked to you when you first came on board and you were talking about things you were interested in covering. And obviously you've had a lot of opportunity to go all over the coast and cover all kinds of amazing stories. We've been reading them um, regularly, but so how has the past year been for you? Are you now a card-carrying member of, of a New Orleanian or a Louisiana? <laughs> well, I, I, from my understanding, calling yourself a New Orleanian is like you have to have lived here before your life began or something. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's an extremely hard <laughs> measurement to make. So I will not say that. But I will say that it's funny because the other day I... Um, you know, on your iPhone where you can uh, look at your albums through places and it shows you a map of mm-hmm. all the places you've take t- took pictures. I did that and I was just like, holy cow, uh, like all the places along the coast that lit <laughs> up. It was, it was amazing. Yeah, I, I love I love coastal Louisiana. I, I figured I would um, because a year before, I, or maybe it was a little bit more, but a year, at least a year before I joined the team, I went to the Society of Environmental Journalists Conference in New Orleans um, and I met Mark Schlefstein for the first time. And um, I was like, I, I want to, this is before, like, there is even an idea of a coastal team. You gave team. him the idea. Oh, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> I wished it into existence. <laughs> but um, I was like, this would be so neat to, to work here. Um, and we took a tour during the conference. We took a tour of Jean Lafitte, uh, the park. And I saw the swamp firsthand for the first time. And um, it's just a landscape that you can fall in love with immediately. And it never, it never stops. Um, I just fall deeper and deeper in love with it. 
I love the way that in the Walton video that we did, I love the way that you describe it, right? It's like this mystic haunting, you know, beautiful, you know, there's something about it, landscape kind of thing. You clearly came in like October or February when the weather was nice too, if you were (laughs) (laughs) wishing an existence, (laughs) (laughs) wishing your job into existence here. So you've covered all kinds of stories from policy, science, community-based stories, I mean, wildlife. Um, what have been some of the highlights for you over the last year? I definitely think the people are the highlights. I mean, uh, coastal Louisiana is so diverse. I've gotten to meet Cambodians that live in Buras, which you're going to hold your next event there. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got a chance to meet some Native Americans in Terrebonne Parish and spend time with them and learn about their way of life. And in Ironton, um, a free slave community, mm-hmm. that's just amazing to me, especially uh, coming from Kansas. You know, we don't have that level of diversity. Um, and it's it's just so uh, heart-wrenching, too, that this is what, these are the people who are threatened the most mm-hmm. by um, the things that we talk about every day. Mm-hmm. And they're like some of the most adaptable people, right? They've kind of been through it and they, they are like, you know, that's also kind of part of our makeup, too, right? They're pretty tough. You that's know, completely so. true. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's definitely true. So one of the things uh, that I want to talk about when we come back, because uh, we're up against the break, is I want to talk about, um, you know, being part of the news desk, you know, you know, what the kind of stories you focus on and those kinds of things. Like, you don't just always write the super quick, you know, stories that need to be out now and published online. You know, like this series, this wildlife series now, you know, you're able to write differently. And I love that. And so when we get back from the break, uh, hopefully we can talk about that some more. Sounds great. Great. Okay, so you're listening to Delta Dispatches. We're here every Thursday from 5 to 6 on 990 WGSO. We'll be right back after the break. Hi, I'm Don Cheadle. Listen up. I want to talk to you about something important, the Environmental Defense Fund. EDF isn't like some of the other environmental groups. EDF works together with those on both sides of the issue. Despite all the fighting in Washington, EDF has found ways for both parties to support real progress. That has made our air and water cleaner and the products in our homes safer. So not only can our planet prosper, so can our future. Go to edf.org to see how you can help. National Wildlife Federation gives voices to the wildlife conservation values that are part of our country's heritage. We are charting a new course for wildlife that our children and grandchildren will thank us for. Visit our website, nwf.org Louisiana, to find out more about our work to restore and protect coastal Louisiana for generations to come. National Wildlife Federation, uniting all Americans to ensure wildlife thrive in a rapidly changing world. nwf.org Louisiana. At Audubon, we believe that where birds thrive, people prosper. Nowhere is that more evident than in Louisiana. Integrating science, education, and policy, Audubon, Louisiana's mission is to conserve and restore natural ecosystems, focusing on birds, other wildlife, and their habitats for the benefit of humanity and the Earth's 
biological diversity. Visit la.audubon.org to learn more and support our mission. la.audubon.org. Restore a Retreat is a coastal nonprofit organization working in the heart of the Barataria and Terrebonne Basins, from the Mississippi River to the Atchafalaya. We work every day to restore Louisiana's coast community and culture with our mission of implementing long-term and large-scale projects for our irreplaceable region. We'll hope you join us in supporting the solution. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and online at www.restoreorretreat.org. And we're back. You're listening to Delta Dispatches on WGSO 990 AM. I'm Jacques Bear with Audubon, Louisiana. And I'm Samoma Laws with Restore or Retreat. Hi, and I'm Sarah with the Times Picayan. You're like you. You need to do this. <laughs> she does. Do You're not it. really our yeah. guest, right? Like, <laughs> so Sarah, um, you know, we were talking a little bit about kind of what the last year has been like, and certainly, you know, you've done kind of reporting, regular reporting, but you've also had these amazing, like, long lead feature stories, and like, you know, even the the recent alligator story. I mean, I just love the 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 intro and the lead to it, and you really are able to build out that narrative. So, what is that like being able to do the reporting that you do, but really going deep and telling the story at the same time. Right. Well, actually, when I first became a reporter, I wanted to be a magazine reporter. So, And this is my strong suit, is doing feature-like feature like stories. And um, and then when I I really wanted to get an environmental reporting, and I found a, um, a daily paper position, then I was like, okay, i got to get on this. So um, this is really exciting for me to be able to go back to what my original passion is and to do the long form writing. Have it, your editor, oh, sorry, have your editors been receptive? Because I mean, you, in a lot of newspapers, I mean, there's just not the capacity for that. But I mean, it sounds like they see that the editors at the Times so can see the value and are you know really supportive. Yeah, I, th- I think um, they are very supportive of that type of work, um, and of course, because of the Walton Foundation that supports our coastal desk, that's really the reason why we're able to do that. Mm-hmm. I love it. I love the like that, you know, that you don't see that so often now. So I love that it's it's a break in that. How, how long does it take you to develop a story like like alligators and pelicans? Like, you know, how, do you work on it for days, weeks? Tell us about that process. Yeah, this story, they, they kind of overlapped the reporting trips. Um, and I think uh, Jacques actually helped me because um, one of my assign or one of the field trips fell through and he um and y'all helped me get out to Queen Bess to do a circle. We have contacts. Yeah. It yeah. wasn't that big a deal. <laughs> but it was, you it have was Queen really, Bess contacts. Yeah. <laughs> it was very important um, to get those those photos and, and to get that um, firsthand look at, at the species that we're talking about. But yeah, it can take two to three weeks, you know, to um, to find to like do the reporting trip and then after you kind of figure out what the story is to start contacting the very important players like I got to talk to Ted Jonan that was one of the people in the alligator story and in the brown pelican story um and uh it was so funny how I fell into talking to him I I I had seen his name you know around um and all these research papers I was reading he was uh with the Louisiana Wildlife and Fisheries um, in 1962, I think is when oh, he wow. started working with them. And he uh, retired 30 years later. And he now lives in St. Charles. And I think he's 80-something years old. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, to just to find someone like that with firsthand knowledge, I was I had talked to, like, five alligator experts. And they had all told me that, you know, Ted would be 
such an interesting person for me to talk to, but none of them had contacts. Well, on like the fifth person I talked to, they said, oh, I actually have a friend that eats lunch with Ted every uh, <laughs> once a week. And like, I can give you my friend's contact and then he can give you Ted's contact. And that's what I did. And I got a chance to talk to that's him. And so Louisiana, right? Yeah. <laughs> the yeah. old man lunch you know, on Wednesdays yeah. in St. Charles Bear, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So that, I mean, and that's, uh, you know, so that kind of like, snowball effect takes some time but it's important you know an important piece of the story and it obviously took some time to get there so that's why you know kind of these you know slow burns or you know that's important i do appreciate the writing so um you talked about alligators first right and then did that lead you to pelicans or did you have some already have some animals in your head I already knew that I knew from the very beginning what three. Did you and Tristan fight about um, which animals she got? Because clearly he got scale bugs and nutria and stuff, right? You clearly won. <laughs> so what do they win. call that? The school, you won the, the you battle. Won the schoolyard pick. Yeah. The, the battle of the charismatic megafauna. I love that they maybe yeah. just had like some drinks and were like, I want the pelican. Well, fine. I want the scale bug. <laughs> Yeah, well, he's he's looking at invasive species, mm. and I'm looking at uh, native species. I like <laughs> that, that's fair. So, I mean, you know, obviously people are so used to seeing the American alligator in Louisiana now, and, you know, whether it's on a swamp or whether it's just out in a swamp, whether, it, you know, it's in, uh, you know, sometimes they're always in, in me- media as well. Um, as same with brown pelicans, you know, but they're, they haven't always been in the situation they're in. They haven't been healthy in terms of the population. So give us a little history. I mean, I know you have a very long interactive history of the, the you know, the, the evolution of the species, but here in Louisiana, in terms of like the last century, what's happened with the alligator? Right. Um, and I mean, and yeah, even beyond, my research went beyond what I was able to put in the article. So I could go on for a le- very long time, but I did. Like, that'll be your book. That'll be my book. <laughs> <laughs> but um Yeah, I thought it was really interesting when I started talking to people about how the American alligator had once been covered by the Endangered Species Act. People were just really surprised by that. They had no idea that they were at one time imperiled. Um, And that was because uh, there was, it was basically a non-sustainable hunting, you know, um, in in the early 60s. And... um, and that was also because of fashion. The, fa- the ha- fashion was driving this trend where um, the fashion was just uh, insatiable and um, there was no hunting limitations. And so um, the hunters were just harvesting as many as they could until to the point where um, it was actually when Louisiana Wildlife and Fisheries noticed that the exports of alligator skins were like just plummeting. That's when they realized that there were so few alligators left wow. that they couldn't export in any so we're in, I mean, today we're in a situation where, I mean, many people don't know this, but some of the biggest fashion houses like Chanel, Prada, Gucci, I mean, they're coming to Louisiana for hides for their belts and their wallets and their purses. I love that thought. That, yeah. <laughs> I mean, know. they are, you know, like, but at the same time, like the alligator population is healthy. So how do, how has that balance been achieved? Yeah. And I, and I talked about this in the alligator story, but, um, so alligators remain protected under this, uh, program called CITES and that program, um, is basically part of the Endangered Species Act, and it has to do with the international trade of endangered species. Um, and we hear talk about that right now with the um, elephant uh, tusks uh, that that's been talking. They've been talking about lifting that ban on on those. But um, societies requires that Louisiana have a sustainable um, alligator program, and that they do uh, surveys of the nests every year. Um, all this is very much driven by CITES and CITES 
means that each uh, hide that is harvested from these farms have to be tagged, and then the tag is checked at um, ports to make sure that it is um, a licensed facility that's harvesting these animals. So basically, if a poacher wanted to go out and kill um, alligators and try to sell those skins, they wouldn't have the proper tag. We um, we were talking about this during the break, but we're, we're close to some major landowners and, and some even some folks who own an alligator business. It is fascinating. They can only get so many tags, right? There's a time of year where they get eggs. The, they use planes and ultralights to get them. There's only a week or two, right, that the alligators hatch themselves. And then once they grow, they have to, like, return so much stock back to the wild. It's it's really fascinating, but it is definitely a process in which they have to follow. So that's to add the tag part onto that about, like, what happens to the alligators and the hides and everything. That's really interesting, too. Yeah, I mean, at this point in time, if you... um have an alligator skin boots or stuff, you're not doing anything to deplete the population. In fact, buying these products can are actually helping the alligator population because you're keeping those farms going and those farms are what are releasing the alligators back into the wild. Yes, I would love an alligator purse. Is that okay to say? Yeah, okay. so. So you, you must have done a, a tour of an alligator farm or two. What are those like? I did an, a tour of an alligator farm when I was in Texas. They stink. Okay. Yeah, yeah, they stink a little, yeah. <laughs> oh, um, I would just say that I got to go to an alligator farm when they were hatching the eggs, and they uh, it was pretty nuts. It's like yeah. Jurassic Park style. Yeah. 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 yeah okay, well, we have much more to talk about with Sarah. I mean, we haven't even gotten the brown, brown pelicans yet. So um, we're about to head into a break, but we'll be right back with Sarah Sneath with the Times-Picayune after the break. Um, you're listening to Delta Dispatches and WGSO 990 AM, also available online, deltadispatches.org. And we're back. You're listening to Delta Dispatches on WGSO 990 AM. I'm Jacques Hebert with Audubon, Louisiana. And I'm Samoma Laws with Restore or Retreat. And we have Sarah Sneath with we keep the Times Picayune. I know. <laughs> can we talk about this, Sarah? Hey, hey, Sarah, Sarah, can we talk about this? Well, what about this? <laughs> I know. We don't have enough segments. But I, um, I do want to get back into kind of the wildlife series and talk about the Endangered Species Act. But first, there was some news that came out that I saw that was, uh, I saw it on Twitter that Times Picayune. Well, it must be true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, we'll see about that. <laughs> this is true. Uh, Times Picayune is partnering with WWNO, which you've done in the past, as well as Fox 8 and Reveal, which is the oh, podcast for awesome. the Center for Investigative Reporting. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, um, I was just, I'll speak more broadly to partnerships in general, yeah. but we've had a partnership with WWNO since um, 2017. And that's like worked out so well for us to do that, um, you know, multiple platform um kind of initiative like today actually um i went and talked to travis and i brought a clip from when i was out um at one of the at queen bess island Mm -hmm. and i think it's just so cool because you know we don't always get the best uh or sometimes we get like some really great uh, rich audio scene and we aren't able to do anything with it as a newspaper Um, we can put it on our website but um but this is just like really exciting to be able to bring people in in a different way that's awesome and i mean people consume news in so many different ways and Mm -hmm. so now you have your tv you have your print online you have radio so i i love that and i mean we uh, really appreciate our friends at WWNO, um, Tegan Wenlin and Travis Lux. They do such great reporting. So that's awesome. Well, the anchor, I would say, of the the first two stories, and I know you have a story on the Louisiana black bear coming out as well, is uh, kind of the Endangered Species Act and how 
that law has had an impact on these species in, in a positive way. We also know that there's some um, things happening right now that seek to repeal or challenge that law. So give us a little bit of an overview for people that may not be familiar. What is the Endangered Species Act? What's the impact it has had? And then I want to get into kind of what's going on now with it. Right. So um, there were a couple conservation laws that pre uh, predated the Endangered Species Act. The Endangered Species Act um, became law in 1973. And, uh, and it was unlike any other law. In fact, um, I'm sure many people have heard about um, this dam in Tennessee. That was one of the first challenges to the Endangered Species Act because there was a snail darter fish that this dam was going to affect. And um, in it, the case went to the U.S. Supreme Court, and in the Supreme Court's decision, they said that this um, that the Endangered Species Act was the most powerful environmental law passed in any nation, and that was in 1973. Or you know, it wasn't very far after 1973. Since then, there have been some changes to the law, but um, right now, the changes that are proposed are unprecedented. Um, in the past 18 months, there have been 75 pieces of legislation that would alter the law. And in, in um, addition to that, it will all by alter. You mean relax, right? Right. Probably. Soften. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Soften the law in different ways. And then uh, the Trump administration has made proposals to also soften the law. And um, and then the first case that is expected to go to the Supreme Court in the fall also concerns the U the Endangered Species Act. So it's a very time. So that's kind of the reason for mm -hmm. my package. It's um, timely around uh, around these all these proposed changes. And for the three species you're highlighting, I mean alligators, um, um, brown pelicans, and the Louisiana black bear. I mean they've been benefited by this law, right? Yeah, all three have um, successfully been removed from the Endangered Species Act. I like the series. Like I said, I love the writing. I love the writing style, especially. But the fact that you're bringing up, hey, you probably didn't know that alligators were once endangered. Even pelicans. I mean, you you can kind of say, oh, well, you know, <clears throat> the oil spill hit them hard. And, and but, you know, how they got endangered even before that. And so even the Endangered Species Act, you're you're reminding everybody about like, okay, this is where we were. This is where we came from. This is how we got here. And so I like that writing style because so much it's about like hit you with what's happening now. But like, I think you're hitting on the effects mm -hmm. and the consequences and, and those things in, in a way that reminds people that like, it wasn't always like this, right? So you have to remember your past so you don't make those mistakes again for the future, right? Exactly. I think that's a really good way of saying it. And, and in 1973, you know, this time frame was just it was a kind of time when people thought that we'd gone too far in one direction, mm -hmm. you know. Um, the fact that DDT was was spilling into our bays and, you know, killing off our birds and, you know, just had uh, kind of unlimited, you know, unlimited um, effects to the environment without, you know, considering those costs in industry. You know, that doesn't mean that you stop industry, but it just means that you should be considering the environmental costs of industry when inside, you know, the... the um, the product, whatever it is that you're creating. And so I think it is really important. This is the time frame uh, when the law passed was around, around the same time as Silent Spring came out. Um, and it's also around the time when Jane um, uh, Goodall mm -hmm. was uh, talking about, you know, her intimate relationship with wildlife. So I think it was extremely um, different time than what we are in now. And I think it's important to look at that and where we came from. It's pretty scary. I mean, could you even imagine Louisiana without the alligator? Could you imagine Louisiana without the brown pelican, right? And 
I mean, the truth is we weren't far from that in the past. And thankfully, you know, we've come back and a lot of times we highlight um, some of the success stories. So we've seen with people are seeing bald eagles all over the place mm-hmm. now. You're, I mean, you, you do see the brown pelican everywhere. You see the roseate spoonbill. So in some ways it is that conservation success story and the, just the proof that conservation works. So tell us a little bit. Let's get into brown pelican. That story was published today. I love the pictures yeah. too. I love the visuals that you have with both stories too. Very you went out uh, to Queen Bass Island You were and you quoted some of the folks from Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries. So what's the current state of the brown pelican in Louisiana? Right. Um, the, well, you know, the alligator and the brown pelican, when they were um, both imperiled um, back in the day, <laughs> mm-hmm. it was other concerns that, you know, it was pollution, it was overhunting and pollution were the two concerns there. Um, but now the threat to pretty much all, all wildlife, including things that are not um, protected by the Endangered Species Act, is habitat loss. And that is what's going on with the brown pelicans. Queen Bess Island is a rookery, which is an, a small island where birds nest. They nest on these islands because they're They have like boy. favorite places to nest too, right? Yeah. 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 These are tiny islands um, in the Gulf that um, that are, you know, void of any predators. And so um, it's amazing to go to one of these rookeries. The first time I ever went to a rookery was in Texas, actually, when I was an environmental reporter there. And... Um, I just, I couldn't describe it as anything other than I feel like I'm going to Jurassic Park because <laughs> it's just, there's so many birds. You've never seen so many birds wow. in your life. Yeah. Was yeah. it Sundown <laughs> Island by chance? That's out of Galveston. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I've been there. It's a really cool to see. And I mean, even seeing the, the young kind of like hatchlings, I mean, they're all white and fuzzy. No, they don't and... look like grown up pelicans, they right? They look that like little pterodactyls like... <laughs> and they make a crazy screeching noise. <laughs> and our Audubon colleagues in Texas actually do a lot to kind of manage and, and steward that, that island, you know, in some of the rookery islands. And it's been hard. I mean, you know, and I did this, started this job after the oil spill, but I remember going out for the five year anniversary of the oil spill. And then again, for the sixth year anniversary and just seeing Cat Island, which was this important rookery and kind of Barataria Bay that had been so heavily oiled. And, you know, we went out and there were remnants and there were kind of mangrove, you know, stumps here and there. And then we go back the next year and it's like completely gone. And that's that's some of the funding post BP is to mitigate that. Right. Natural resource damage assessment. Uh, I saw in your article, like 60 to 100,000 birds, including pelicans, were impacted, right? So there's actually a responsibility of the state to put that back as part of the money that they get in place. That's right. So the BP oil spill, you know, um, worsened the erosion that we were seeing on these islands because they killed off a lot of plant life, the roots that are holding these islands together. And so, um, so yeah, that's one of the plans is to um, build back Queen uh, Bess. Queen Bess. In particular. In particular, yeah. Right now, if you look at, there is an aerial shot and, they pro- and the state provided us with some drone footage from above the island. And you can see that just large chunks of it are just water. So they will be filling that in with um, sediment and replanting vegetation. So that way, uh, like I said, you know, these islands, every little tiny spot of land there is to nest, these birds will nest. So the when, little pterodactyls. <laughs> I mean, they are just within beaks reach of one another. Like that's how close these nests are. Because they like the same place, right? And they will come back to that island is the hope because it's a rookery, because it's, you know. Food supply. Right. And, and no predators, yeah. right? That's very right. interesting to me. So um, what, do you, what else are you working on? You have black bears coming up? 
That's right. So um, the most elusive of the creatures that I focused on was the Louisiana black bear. And there is a coastal population um, with Louisiana black bear. And I went to in St. Mary Parish. I was going to say, when you Iberia go through Parish. Morgan City down to Berwick, there's signs. And you're like, I think that's a, no, that's a bear sign walking across the street, right? Right. So I actually, but it took me actually three trips to finally see a black bear. And so Monday and Tuesday... Um, it's hot too, though, Sarah. You know, it's hot. Yeah, well, that's, I'm sure those guys get hot, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. With their fur. Yeah. yeah. Right. Do, they, do they hibernate in the summer here? Or? <laughs> they, they, um, they do. Hi- these Louisiana black bears do hibernate. Well, kind of. They don't quite hibernate in the same way that um, northern bears hibernate. They don't totally like go to sleep. They're um, somewhat you know, around, but yeah. And when it gets hot in the middle of the day, they usually go into these sugar cane fields and lay down and you just, you can't see them. And even though they're like 200, you know, pound animal, you cannot, I watched one walk into, so on Monday and Tuesday, um, a photographer with the times picayune, um, named Brett Duke and I, um, staked out a trash dump (laughs) for, um, several hours. And we got up on at four 30 in the morning on Tuesday, went back to the trash dump and, just were standing there. There were some people that drove by that told us, oh, you should try this little river shack on the other side of the river there. And I was like, okay, you know, okay, we'll try that out. After we'd been at the trash dump for like another four hours, we're like, okay, maybe we'll go try that. Yeah. <laughs> so we were driving over a bridge to go to this other location. And as we were driving over the bridge, I spotted a Louisiana Did black Did you think bear. like you were going crazy at that point? Cause you were looking so hard for me. Like, wait, is that the elusive unicorn, <laughs> you know, that I'm looking for? I had no doubt. It was a big black bear. Oh. It was a male black okay, bear. Okay. So I don't want to steal, you know, no spoiler alert or anything, but like how many are we talking yeah. about? Um, in St. Mary and Iberia, there's about 180 In the whole state. There's about 700. Oh, oh. wow. That's more than I would have guessed. Well, and I mean, we need to go into another break, but I just want to understand a little bit more because I don't, I mean, it's not one of the animals that people think about, Lots of questions. you know, but Lots of questions. Um, what happened to the black bear, you know, what, what are the, yeah. are there programs to try to like, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> to try to like, re, like, you know, grow the population. I want to learn a little bit more about that. And again, the story's coming out next week. Yeah, that's right. Okay. So no spoilers, but give us a little teaser. So we'll be right back um, after the break. Um, you're listening to Delta Dispatches and WGSO 990 AM, also available online, deltadispatches.org. And we're back. You're listening to Delta Dispatches on WGSO 990 AM. I'm Jacques Hebert with Audubon, Louisiana. And I'm Simone Loss with Restore Retreat. I say this every show, I feel like, but you wouldn't imagine the stuff we talk about and cover during breaks. <laughs> yeah, wigs flying out of airplanes and <laughs> We do airboats. have to ask Sarah a fun question. I know. I was going to ask about the fun question. You. It's okay, your turn. Okay. It's always his turn to ask the fun question. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess this, I mean, this is a kind of obvious question, but... If you had to pick one native Louisiana wildlife species um, that is your favorite, what would it be? Mm-hmm. This is hard. Mm-hmm. Oh, no. And I was telling her during the break, we don't ask tough questions. Yeah. <laughs> we usually ask you, like, what's your favorite snowball? What's your favorite native Louisiana species to Instagram? To Instagram? Oh, okay. Well, I'll, I'll have to say the alligator because 
uh, black bears are just too hard to get, to get a photo of. <laughs> no, you like to Snapchat <laughs> alligators, right? Uh, <laughs> which, which is a plug because Sarah has an amazing Instagram and Twitter. So tell people where they can go to follow you. Yeah, um, my Twitter is at Sarah Sneath and the same for my Instagram. Very simple. But yes, I do love taking pictures of wildlife um, and bikes. There's a lot of bikes in there too. <laughs> How is Louisiana for biking? Well, we just had not great sometimes. Huh? Yeah, well... Um, um, it's great. Actually, uh, Joan, who just joined our team um, through the AAAS program, um, and she's been riding for us, She, I saw that she was a cyclist when she was, uh, whenever we, it was announced that she was going to join our team. And I told her, hey, you might want to bring your bike to New Orleans. And she was like, I, don't, I didn't know there was a cycling scene there. I was like, oh, there's a cycling scene. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be fun. And so I actually brought my cycling team to the swamp last, um, or this past weekend. And because I, I have to share what I get to do, you know, for my job with the people that I care about. And um, they loved it. We went to Chico State Park. There's a 17.5 mile loop there. Uh, and we, it takes you on boardwalks that go right through the, like right through cypress and tupelo trees. That's Amazing. awesome. Beautiful. That's nice to know. Um, can we talk about bears still? We have lots of questions. Mm -hmm. Um, so, um, what do they eat? Um, I guess they have no predators, right? And so it's loss of habitat for them that is endangering them. And I don't want to spoil anything. Right. No, um, they eat acorns and they eat sugar cane and they really? eat all sorts of things. Um, they, I heard a story about actually, um, about how someone found a Louisiana black bear who ate some fermented apples mm, from drunk. an apple tree and got, yeah, mm. very drunk. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, feel like, I feel like this whole show is a pitch for a Disney movie set in Louisiana about the Louisiana black bear sleeping in the sugarcane field, eating so I know drunk people, apples. I know people who have animals that have eaten fermented satsumas and like same thing, like drunk. That's amazing. That <laughs> Only amazing. in Louisiana, right? So um, habitat loss, was hunting ever an issue with the black bear? Um, the, yeah, the Louisiana black bear was heavily hunted. Actually, the Louisiana black bear is the inspiration for the teddy bear. And that involves um, the hunting trip of Theodore Roosevelt, who went to Mississippi to hunt um a Louisiana black bear with Holt Collier and um, he he was chasing this Louisiana black bear through the forest and um, at a certain point you know Holt was like hey Mr. President you just stay here I'm gonna I'm gonna um, get this bear for you and by by the time Holt got it pinned up against this water hole the president had actually already gone to lunch <laughs> and so Holt tied the bear up to a tree and he called for the president and his men to come um, because he got the black bear. And the president would not shoot the black bear because it was tied up to a tree. And so this became a famous um, illustration in the Washington Post with uh, this, this cartoon of Teddy Roosevelt refusing like to shoot. Like being a sweetheart. Yeah, yeah refusing no, yeah. to shoot uh, the black bear, saying that it was unsportsman because it was tied up to a, unsportsmanlike because it was tied up to a tree. And um, so a toy maker uh, decided to make Teddy's bear. And that's now what we call the teddy bear. Well, we went to Yosemite this summer. And, and like I said, there there's just this whole other bear culture that we're not used to here in Louisiana that, you know, people that go hike and camp in Yosemite, you have to have like this bear can and you have to, you know, they will find a French fry in your car and they have all these videos. And so it's interesting that Louisiana has their own bear story. And, and I'm so happy that you're going to be able to write about it too. Yeah, I think that that actually, you know, you hit on a good point, which is the culture of having um, black bears around is something that they're still working on. You know, that's part of 
a Louisiana wildlife and fisheries kind of effort is to um, change the culture and, and try to figure out how to show people that you can live with black bears. You know, you do have to take steps like having bear spray on you, um, which is uh, basically like pepper spray, but for, yeah. but for um, mm-hmm. black bears and, you know, taking precautions, but you can live with these creatures. You just have to not leave food in your car. That's a big <laughs> one. <laughs> uh, you know, things like that. Yeah. Even when you go to Yellowstone, they like, you have to be really loud. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, it's just all these things you don't think about. Uh, and you feel a little out of place as a Louisiana person and you don't deal with that other places, but so interesting to know that they have some, you know, Cajun bears out there. Yeah. Um, yeah. You have one right here in studio. <laughs> Cajun A bear. Sorry, that was a bad joke. Um, so you talked about alligators, right? And uh, kind of the farming and how that had an impact. You talked about, um, you know, with the brown pelicans, I mean, there was sort of a reentry program as well. And what about with the Louisiana black bears? Like what kind of programs exist to help the populations? Um, yeah, so when the, after the bears were listed... <laughs> After the bears were listed, hab- you know, habitat loss was the thing that needed to address the most. And it wasn't until the bears were listed in 93, I think. And then it wasn't until 2005 when they designated critical habitat. And um, once they did that, though, um, I think it, I, I don't have the number off the top of my head. Well, you got to read the story, Jacques. Yeah, okay. Thousands I mean, of acres were um, were set aside for habitat. So, you know, so it did take and it was it was through like several um, federal, state and private um, groups, nonprofit groups that all um, got together in order to figure out ways to set aside this land through like easements and um, other, and I think one, a, a large um, piece of land was purchased for a park. Um, and that's the way that they were able to create enough habitat for the bears to exist. But um, two months ago, one of the men who um, first filed lawsuit to get the Louisiana black bear listed filed lawsuit again to get the, the black bear listed again as an endangered species and one of um the points and he brings up in the petition uh in the lawsuit is that um that these coastal bears are facing habitat loss once more because of sea level rise and coastal erosion such an important story and i mean all these have been amazing with beautiful photography and interactive so please go check it out nola.com sarah tell us again twitter and um instagram yeah at sarah sneath no h s-n-e-a-t-h Thank you so much, Sarah, for being on. Well, that's we'll a see great you on your show. bike. Thank right. you. <laughs> I love when we get to highlight the wildlife aspect of the Delta Dispatches. So, um, well, that's another great show, another great week. We will be back next week. Um, have a good rest of your week and find us online anytime at deltadispatches.org. <laughs>